for the 51st meeting of the Animal Fan Club. I'm obligate Quillivore, Mike. And I'm an elephant calf eager to assert her independence, Meredith. We meet every week at our clubhouse we like to call the Dalmatian Station. Arf, arf, arf. To talk about our favorite animals. What we lack in expertise, we make up for an unbridled enthusiasm and childlike wonder. Wow! So, saddle up that miniature horse and hold on tight. For the furriest, fin-filled, and feathered podcast in all of the kingdom, Animalia. What up, Meredith? Oh, you know, Mike, I'm just living um, some animal dreams and having animal dreams, turns out. Like, a lot of them lately, and like weird, well, I guess all dreams are weird, and it's really annoying to talk about your dreams, but I'll just quickly (laughs) sum up, like the one I had this morning. I wrote like an award-winning essay about how salamanders smell. Which I was trying to deliver in some sort of like symposium across a Zoom conference and it was all going haywire. Wow. Yeah, that's very now. I know. And then another one where I was like in some grotto in Florida and I noticed it was like a grotto filled with like alligators or crocodiles and they all saw me and all stood up on their hind legs and waved and said, hi. That's kind of pleasant. I like that second one more than the first one. Yeah, me too. But yeah, that's just kind of where my head is. I don't know what the hell is going on. But a lot of animal dreams these days. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. I've been watching a lot of horror movies, I guess, as, you know, we're wrapping up the spookiest of months. Right. And entering a month of perhaps even increased levels of spookiness. We'll see. Some insects appeared in the film Hereditary. There were a lot of flies Mm -hmm. and a lot of ants. Yes. And then there was a seemingly random dog appearance where it was a dog that I felt I didn't know. Maybe it had appeared in the film, but I didn't feel like I was really aware of it being a character. And it's such a small cast in that picture. Right. That with the entrance of the dog, I was very much like, oh, there's a dog in this house. Like, we haven't even really... (laughs) talked about that before it was like the dog was only available for one day of filming you know i do love the like material conditions of trying to include animals on set like how that might actually affect or take away or add to like the story that the writers had written not taking into consideration that dogs are on their own dog agenda yeah dog standard time (laughs) dst dst We've been watching a lot of that show, What We Do in the Shadows. It's about, have you seen it? Yes. Are you on season one or season two? We just finished season two last night. Oh, wow. I don't know that I've fully consumed season two, (sighs) but you know, it was starting. It came out right when the pandemic was starting. Yes, exactly. And you know, where I live in Queens, like I've been going on lots of walks and everything Mm -hmm. and and was especially at that time at the beginning of all of this in the late spring, early summer. And there was like a cab parking lot where like the cabs go to park, Yeah, you know, and there were so many cabs there with the what we do in the shadows display. It was as if it was frozen in time on the night when they all switched out their advertisements. You know what I mean? Yes. That's, oh man, that's kind of eerie. 
it was a little spooky. Yeah, there's a lot of bat stuff in that, <laughs> which I like. Yeah, that show is one of my favorites. Oh. It's so funny. It is like Staten Island. <laughs> it's yeah, it is um probably our great discovery of the past like month or so. We're pretty obsessed with it. But also, I've been noticing, um, and I sent you one instance of this. There's some great animal vocab being represented in the New York Times crossword as of late. Right. I didn't send you the one from yesterday, Mike. Oh. See if you can get this. It's a word that begins with C, and the clue was terrapin topper. Oh, a carapace. Yeah, carapace in the freaking crossword. And this was after the one, it was something like insect sensory organ or something and it was palps right 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 the palps (laughs) man they're really digging deep yeah they sure are meredith i want to come back to what we do in the shadows real quick have you seen the film before there was the tv series there was a film no and actually we planned on watching it last night but i um embarked on a major lasagna journey that didn't end until like 11 o'clock so wow and after we consumed said lasagna, we were too tired to start the movie. Yeah. But that was on the docket literally last night. Yeah. I'm giving myself like another week before I really have to start cooking again. Yeah. Because I've just been ordering out way too much. Yeah. I'm loving the cooking. It's like other than my animal journeys, it's been very grounding. Yeah. And fun. Yeah. I mean, I kind of go all out. I made like a first communion level lasagna for just Saturday dinner. For two. You just strong ant vibes. <laughs> what does that mean? That you're kind of giving me Auntie Meredith. Oh, aunt. That's what I meant. Oh, by I aunt. immediately like, aunt, like aunt, A-U-N-T, not like I immediately went to the the the, the hexapod and I was like, I Yeah, the eusocial hexapod. I don't get it. <laughs> no, no. Although you were displaying a eusocial behavior, but I was referencing the human familial relationship. Yes. With aunt. Auntie. Yes. Auntie Meredith. Right. With her first communion level lasagna. Other aunt, the knee, told me I would make a good mob wife. <laughs> That's why lasagna was so good. Uh, you know, what can I say? <laughs> that sounds like an utterance of a Eastern Pennsylvania Italian man. Sure, sure is. Well. <laughs> On that note, yeah, are you ready to kick yes. it off? Cool. I go first because it's an odd number episode and I think we're like, wait, I've, I think we've recovered from our period of confusion. Oh, no, you do go first on odd number episodes. That's right. Because you went first on episode number one. I was confused about zeros. I'm often confused about zeros, too. It's OK. Well, cool. Well, hit me with it, Meredith. I'm. Are, are you ready for the old taxonomy cheer? Yeah, I think so. OK. Taxonomy, you. Taxonomy, we. Taxonomy, who. Taxonomy. Kingdom. And Amelia. You know them. You love them. Phylum. Chordata. Just call me a spinophile. Class. Aves. I'm living in a birdie world. Order. Caradroforms. Masquerading as a shorebird. Family. Scolopossidae. Masquerading as a sandpiper. Genus. Scolopax. I'll call you skew-eyed dugface. Species. Scolopax minor. My beak is long. My names are funny. I'm the American woodcock. Cool. Yeah. There's a reason for this. I normally do not like to do creatures from the same class like three times in a row because we've been on quite a birdie journey. We have. With our turkey vulture, the raven, and now the American woodcock. Sure. But there was a reason, an inciting incident here. I walked out of my apartment a couple days ago and I see this little thing out of the corner of my eye and I look over and it's a freaking woodcock. 
which I'm not sure if you know what they look like, but I was aware of them because they've been kind of like meme worthy because they, as I'll talk about, they do a pretty funny dance. And also they have these like freakishly long, like humorously long beaks. Yeah. Um, so they stand out pretty much because of <laughs> those features. And I, I literally saw one. So I was like having like a celebrity animal moment like on the street by my apartment. And I freaked out a little bit because I thought like, oh man, what the hell is it doing here? And then I did a little research and we are mid migration season for the woodcock. So we are in like prime time to see them potentially around the city. Oh, prime woodcock season in New York City. Sure is. Yeah. That's exciting. Yeah. You know, it's a bird I've always wanted to see because they are kind of famous and also have this like dirty birds mug that has like I've talked about this before, but it's got all these like (laughs) birds that have like kind of funky, dirty sounding names like the Southern Screamer, which I've done before. And there's also like the Bearded Tit or the Andean Cock of the Rock. Sure. Yeah. Heard of all those. And also on there is the American Woodcock. So it's been it's in my like I've been wanting to in my autograph book like I want to be able to see a woodcock one day because I have heard that they do hang out in the city and I have seen a dead one on the sidewalk before but this is my first live sighting and I was like oh my god I have to talk about them because they are actually pretty cool as it turns out pretty interesting birds got some animal yearbooks superlatives to talk about Uh uh-huh and also their dance is just like one of the funniest things I think in the animal kingdom so let's get this going okay so quick tax facts, obviously, Kingdom Animalia, Phylum Chordata, Class Aves, duh, I'm living in a birdie world. Order, Charadriforms, I said masquerading as a shore bird. So generally the Charadriforms are referring to birds that live in like coastal areas. So you can think of like wading birds, like sandpipers. There's also gulls or things called auks. So that's like referring to like puffins and other birds like puffins. So what's interesting, though, is that the woodcock is kind of an exception to this. They're not really a shorebird. So that's why I said masquerading as a shorebird. They're woodcocks. Like, and woodcock, the old English of, like, woodcock literally translates into, like, chicken of the woods. (laughs) It's like tuna, chicken chicken of the sea. sea, (laughs) The chicken of the woods. Yeah, so these are kind of, like, the exception to the shorebird rule. But they're still, they look very similar to, like, sandpipers and that they've got these long beaks that are used to kind of poke around in the soil or the sand to pull out various invertebrates. Okay, moving into the family Scolopacidae, <laughs> masquerading as a sandpiper. So the Scolopacidae are generally referred to as the sandpipers, but again, the woodcock is not a sandpiper. Uh-huh. It does not live in the coastal area. Uh-huh. It lives in the woods, in the forest. Hence why it's called the woodcock and not the beachcock. Beachcocks are a completely different thing. Okay. So that's why uh, I say masquerading as a sandpiper. Again, similar to these kinds of birds, they have similar morphology in terms of their beaks and how they go about getting food, but they are not coastal, damn it. So moving on to the genus of Scolopax. <laughs> Sounds like it's like a spinal condition. Yeah, it's like it's not it's like overly scientific for a bird that's just like so sweet and adorable. So this is Latin. So Scolopax is Latin for snipe or woodcock. Um, But I saw this thing and I forget what the Greek word was, but this guy kind of 
discovered that the Greek could be translated into skew-eyed or my favorite, Doug face, D-U-G oh, face. Okay. Yeah. Not like Doug's you have known. No, not like Doug Funny from Nickelodeon's right. tunes. Right. But Doug face, which I think it <laughs> like what an insult. You Doug face. Hey, listen up, Doug Face. But it turns out Doug Face isn't even like the best of its other names. It's AKAs. So the woodcock is also referred to as the the timber doodle. Timber doodle? <laughs> timber doodle. Adorable. <laughs> really good. The bog sucker, the Labrador twister, or the wood snipe. So they've got some great nicknames, as if woodcock wasn't good enough. And that we're kind of through our um tax facts. We can go into a bit of their range. So we're talking about this species is the American woodcock. So it's one of seven species in the genus of woodcocks. So the range, so eastern North America generally, which is why I encountered it here in Manhattan. So up into Canada, Manitoba, and as far east as like Labrador and Newfoundland. And they migrate into the southern U.S. for the winter. And we are in that migration season right now, baby. So late October, early November is when you're going to see them. So keep your eyes peeled for these really cute birds. And so in the southern U.S., so they have to migrate like many birds do, but in their case specifically because they use their beaks to poke around in the soil. So they can't be hanging out really where the, the ground is frozen, right? So they have to be able to have soft ground to poke their beaks around. <laughs> uh-huh. So they're in the summer and into spring before they migrate north to breed. You're going to mainly find them in like Alabama, Georgia, Georgia, <laughs> Georgia, Georgia, <laughs> Mississippi and Louisiana. So now we can talk about their appearance, which is kind of the best part. I love that in the Wikipedia article, they're referred to as chunky. <laughs> I was like, that's a good descriptor. So yeah, they're pretty chunky, but they're like, I mean, generally they're going to be like the size of a robin, but they have much shorter feet and they are pretty plump. They sit kind of close to the ground, though they do run very, very quickly, as I witnessed the other day, seeing this one kind of <laughs> scuttle around on the sidewalk. But like I mentioned, they've got this humorously long beak. Like that was the thing I was like, oh my gosh, seen it in the flesh. It was like, wow, that beak is really long. <laughs> and what's really cool about the beak is it actually at the tip, it has a prehensile tip. It can manipulate. It can, there's like muscles at the end. So when the tip is down in the soil, it can actually like open it just a tiny bit to like, say, grab an earthworm or a snail or something down there. Wait a second. The beak can do that? Yeah. It can like articulate? Yes. It's a prehensile beak tip. First of all, great name for a rock band. <laughs> yeah. Prehensile beak tips. Yeah. Like a post-Riot Girl punk experience. Prehensile beak tips. I love that. Oh, I can just imagine some of the costumes. Do you remember that group that used to play in the subway back when we could go out in the subways? It was called You Bred Raptors prehistoric post-rock. Did you ever see those guys? Were they in um, Union Square a lot? They were in Union Square a lot and then in Grand Central too. I feel like I've, I remembered seeing them, yeah, in Union Square. They're one of my favorite buskers because their evolution over time has been noteworthy. <laughs> that like what they were doing eight years ago versus what they were doing 
six years ago and then four years ago and two years ago has all been completely different, you know? Yes, good for them. Like I walked by them one time and they were wearing like all black with reflective <laughs> like silver metal masks, you know? <laughs> they have like a visual concept and it's bold. I, I'm here for that. Yeah. Well, maybe the prehensile beak tips can follow in their um, footsteps, <laughs> their talon steps. Yeah, <laughs> their fossilized footprints. Right, there we go. So as far as the plumage, so this will kind of tie into their habitat. So these birdies very much rely on camouflage and they love to hang out in kind of like not dense forests, but kind of more sparse forest areas where there's going to be a lot of leaf cover. So a lot of kind of like dead leaves and just kind of organic material on the ground. So this will kind of, you can kind of think of leaf cover and the ground of kind of a lightly forested area, you can think of the coloring that they would need to be camouflaged. So we're talking browns, tans, blacks, and grays. And you look at pictures of them. There was like a quiz on YouTube, like spot the woodcock. They blend in incredibly well because they're kind of speckled with these darker bits and blend completely into kind of the, you know, kind of brownish decaying vegetation on the ground. So that's their plumage. But in terms of their eyes. This is where our animal yearbook superlative comes in. So they've got these eyes that sit on essentially kind of like on their big eyes. They sit on the top of their head and this gives them essentially almost a 360 degree view horizontally, huh. which is perhaps one of the largest visual fields of any bird there is. So they can pretty much see kind of all the way around them, including when they've got their nose, their little beak, like beak deep in the soil using their prehensile beak tip to pull up an annelid. Wow. And on that note, so in terms of their their diet, they love invertebrates. So we're talking worms, snails, spiders, beetles, ants, even just larvae of different sorts. And this is bringing us to my favorite part of the woodcock, which is the woodcock shuffle. Uh-huh. This sounds familiar, actually. It is so cute. And I actually saw it happen the other day. So I'm over the moon about this. So essentially, when they're foraging for food, they kind of do this little dance. So they'll put like one foot down real heavy, and then they kind of like raise their butt up. And then they'll put the next foot down and kind of raise their butt up. So it's just kind of like this... I don't know, like moving their body, but their head kind of stays still. So it's just kind of like pop and lock sure. kind of thing. They're crushing it on the dance floor. But what this does is it, as they're putting their feet forward, it supposedly sends vibrations into the ground that kind of get the worms all riled up. So they're more easily able to detect the worms because of their dance. Oh, <laughs> So the vibrations scare the worms to the surface and then they eat them. So they dance it out and then there's a more bountiful worm harvest. Yeah, it's like their body shake brings all the worms to the top of the soil layer. Which would be the yard. Now we're getting into definition of what is yard. Is yard just the surface or is yard the root structure? Right. Oh. Is yard, does that denote like ownership by humans? Interesting. Who knows? Yeah. It's not that it like brings them to the surface, but it does cause them to start moving around, kind of shakes them into action. And then the bird is able to detect that motion. And then they just go whoop, shove that beak down into that soil, this freakishly long beak. Beak freaks. Beak freaks. <laughs> and then they have their tasty lunch. So, yeah. 
please look up the Woodcock Shuffle online. There's lots of um, lots of videos of this, and it's pretty cool. I even saw one from it was like a national park up in Canada somewhere. I forget where exactly, but it was these people that saw Mommy Woodcock with her babies crossing the road, and they were all doing this <laughs> dance. And then when she stops, all the babies stop. Everybody stop. It's like the cha-cha shuffle, but the uh, woodcock shuffle. The woodcock shuffle, yeah. So, and then she starts up again and the babies like, keep following her and doing the dance. It is so fun. That sounds really fun. I'm really into these birds because they really know how to boogie. So quickly, we'll just get through breeding because this is another cool aspect of them. So breeding takes place in the spring. So it's often like in Ohio, for instance, seeing woodcocks doing their breeding dance is kind of a harbinger of the warm weather to come. So at this point, they kind of move into a different habitat area for the breeding display. They'll go and go out into like forest openings or in more open pastures. And they make a very specific kind of nasally like sound. And they kind of do that while rotating 360 degrees. So as to like call out to all the ladies in full... <laughs> 460 degree sound dispersion, I guess. So they let out this sound and then they kind of leap high into the air. They fly high into the air in kind of these lar- this large spiral pattern. And then this causes their wingtips to vibrate against the wind, kind of creating like a chirpy sound. And then kind of once they get up high, they zigzag down, continuing to chirp. So it's these displays that will attract a female. Yeah. I mean, that sounds pretty attractive. I know. I'm like, as if the dance wasn't enough to bring me to the yard. Right. This crazy flight pattern, I'm there. Myself also. After the mating, the man kind of goes off and he will mate with pretty much whoever else likes his flight pattern. But mommy will select her nest site alone. And it's not really a nest as much as just kind of a depressed area and kind of that leafy vegetation where she can very much utilize her camouflage. She'll lay three to four eggs and the chicks are born precocial. So we can kind of think of precocious, like a precocious child being like, the weight of the human head is 5.6 pounds. Like a know-it-all kid. We think Uh of them as being precocious. So the kids, so the chicks are born pretty much like very much developed. They leave the nest within hours of hatching. They're born pretty camouflaged already. Um, They start probing for bugs within a few days and then flying within two weeks. So they're kind of hatched and gone pretty fast. That's cool. I think they kind of stick with mommy for like up to a month. Nice. Yeah. So that kind of brings us to the end of my woodcock shuffle. But generally, like a lot of birds, populations are decreasing due to loss of habitat. And what I've witnessed is that, especially during their migration, so in the spring and the fall, you'll see this a lot, which is initially why I was really worried when I saw the woodcock on the street. But I think he was just dancing, looking for worms, honestly. But they are in danger of running into windows and becoming either stunned or killed in the process. So when I was down in Hudson Yards... Like in the springtime, I saw one, like I saw the beak, like the big long beak, like sticking up. And then I saw him like on his back with his feet, like straight up in the air, obviously hit a window and just come crashing to the ground. So that is a major issue with birds migrating through urban areas like Manhattan. Sure. So yeah, that's my woodcock. 
You like my woodcock? I do love your woodcock, Meredith. <laughs> that was really lovely. Thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. That was really fun for me, especially because I actually got to see one. Yeah, I'm jealous of your woodcock sighting. I guess I <laughs> should find new places to look for woodcock. Yeah, especially right now. They're they're all over. Yeah. Well, I guess let's take a break. I'm going to go outside and go on a little... Uh, bird finding expedition trawling for cocks <laughs> trawling for woodcocks sounds good break time break time in these uncertain times it may be difficult to find peace one path is the path of the muscaloid the muscaloid have inhaled good vibes and exhaled bad vibes through their exhalant siphons the muscaloid knows the secrets of extracting only the essential elements from the water that is existence. Come, join us as we follow the, the mantle. mantle, the new muscaloid meditation method from Brand Clubby. For creatures of all genders and reproductive methods, we will teach you how to launch your anxieties away as a gastropod may fire a love dart towards a worthy mate or as a bivalve may propel their progeny into the expanse of the open. Inhale the mix of fluids that is reality. And siphon away the negativity with the mantle. The mantle, the new muscaloid meditation method. From Brand Clubby. Uh, Comedy Hour. First up is Penguin Poundstone. Hit it, Penguin. All right, it's great to be here. You guys are beautiful. All right. What did the magician say to the fisherman? Well, I don't know. Pick a card, any card. <laughs> what do you call a camel with three humps? Well, I don't know. Pregnant. What do you call 99 rabbits walking backwards all at once? Well, what? A receding hairline. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. You've been great. Hey, everybody. I'm Patton Ocelot. What do you get if you cross a firefly and a moth? I don't know. An insect who can find its way around a dark wardrobe. <laughs> what has four wheels and flies? What? A dumpster. <laughs> what do you call a baby goat that knows martial arts? I don't know. Karate Kid. <laughs> Thanks for coming out tonight. You'll have a great night. Woo! Woo! Ha ha ha. Animal jokes. Ha ha ha. Are always funny. Ha 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 ha. Texana you. Texana we. Texana who? Texana me. Kingdom. Animalia. This isn't for fans of fabric. Philo. Cordata. Verta. Bray are a okay. Class. 
Mammalia, they got that fur. Order. Artiodactyla, undulate squad, raise those hoofs. Family. Giraffe day, a family of ruminant creatures. Genus. Giraffa, long, beautiful necks. Species. Cumular pedalis. It's commonly called the giraffe. It's a great example of some charismatic megafauna. <gasps> Yes. Meredith, have we done giraffes before? I know nope. that I've done the Okapi, the other extant giraffe a day, but I don't know that we've done giraffes proper. We have not done giraffes proper, and I cannot think of a more proper time to do the giraffe. Well, buckle up. I love this. All right. Tax facts. Kingdom Animalia, we know that. Phylum Chordata, they have spines. Indeed. They actually have a very long <laughs> neck. Indeed. Kingdom Phylum class, Mammalia. Class Mammalia, mammals. Order Artiodactyla Ungulate Squad. Ungulate. I have also now heard ungulate. I know, I hate it. So I think it. we've been saying it wrong this entire time. I think so too, but now it's like it's ours, you know? Like we've really taken it and made it our own <laughs> out of stupidity. We have. We have. Well, I think just if we expect others to modify what they say, I think we have to do that too. So ungulate squad. Sure. Okay. Got it. Even toed ungulates. <laughs> they're generally hoofed creatures. They walk ungulagrade, which means they're up on their toes. So Artiodactyla squad is, well, the infra order that we're in of Artiodactyla is Pecora, which contains bovids and cervids. So we have cows, buffaloes, goats, antelopes, musk, oxen, etc. are all the bovids, Yay. is my understanding. And then the deer are the cervids. And then the other infra order is Tragulidae, the Tragulina. The Tragulidae are in a different uh, infra order, which is fun. Yeah. That was like one of your earliest animals, that little um, that little deer with the funny teeth. Like, <laughs> Yeah. The Indian spotted chevrotain. Yes. That's the one. So now we get to family, the Giraffidae. It used to be quite diverse, spanning Eurasia and Africa, but there are only two extant species remaining, the okapi and the giraffe. Wow. And the okapi kind of, if you're not familiar with it, it it's almost like a giraffe with a shorter neck and then black fur and then kind of like zebra legs. Yeah, like zebra haunches. Mm-hmm. It's like a giraffe that's like feeling more, it's like horsiness. Sure. It looks more horsey than I think a giraffe does, I guess. It's almost like a horse with like that kind of giraffe hunch, you know? Yeah. And then a longer neck than a horse, but a shorter neck than a giraffe. (laughs) So both the okapi and the giraffe are limited to sub-Sahara Africa, but they like different habitats. The giraffe loves savannas. And the Okapi live really in the dense rainforests of the Congo. Yeah. Now we get to the genus Giraffa and then the species Camilla Pardullus. Camilla Harris? <laughs> yeah, it does sound like Camilla Harris. There are nine subspecies varying by region. However, there's mitochondrial and nuclear DNA as well as some morphological measurements that have described up to eight extant giraffe species. Whoa. And there's lots of studies classifying giraffe. I mean, they're a charismatic megafauna. They're a pretty popular creature. Is there a giraffe classification task force? Not that I encountered, but there was a 2020 study that showed, depending on which method you use, you could recognize from two to six species in this taxonomic hypothesis. Oh. It also found that multi-species coalescent methods can lead to taxonomic oversplitting. 
as those methods delimit geographical structure rather than species. Okay. The three species hypothesis is highly supported by phylogenetic analysis and often corroborated by most popular genetic and multi-species coalescent analysis. So we think that there are three species, essentially. I mean, showing again the limitations of Linnaean taxonomy and also the human impulse to classify everything. Right. There are also allegedly seven extinct species of giraffe. So that's exciting. Yeah. Let's get some size stats. <laughs> okay. So fully grown giraffes are 14 to 19 feet tall and the males are taller than the females. 14 to 19. 14 to 19 feet. And the males tend to be taller than the females. And this is hoof to ossicone. <laughs> As you remember, the ossicones are the cute little horn things, right? Yes, 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 yes. This is why I'm unsure if we've talked about just okapi or okapi and giraffe. Because No, I think just okapi. Because okapis have ossicones too, right? And they have these hair whorls that like come up. Yeah, I think we talked about it in relation to that. Yeah, that's what I think too. So... The tallest male on record was 19.3 feet, and the tallest female was 17 feet. Oh, my gosh. So males are larger than females, okay? And that's in weight, too. Typical weight is 2,600 pounds for an adult male and 1,800 pounds for an adult female. They have eyes on both sides of their head, which gives them good all-around vision from its tall height. It's sort of like... You know, in New York, where the cops will pull up those, like, crane things with the little huts that, like, I don't know, somebody sits in or there's cameras in for, like, crowd control and stuff like that? Yeah. It's similar to that because they can just see all around and they're taller. They can see in color. They also have sharp senses of hearing and a sharp sense of smell. So I don't think that those little police mobile tower things have a good sense of smell, but maybe I'm mistaken. (laughs) Their nostrils have enough control that they can close their nostrils, <laughs> which protects them against sandstorms and ants and is something I'm wildly jealous of. Like, can you imagine if you were in a stinky situation and you could just close your nostril flaps? Oh, my gosh. I would never shower. Same. You may have heard of their tongue before. It's famous. It's, <laughs> it's 18 inches long. And like your woodcock beak, it is prehensile. Yeah. Isn't it blue too? Well, yes. It's purplish black in color. It it is probably to prevent sunburn because it's just always sticking its tongue out (laughs) close to the sun, you know? (sighs) And its upper lip is also prehensile. Now, a bit about the word prehensile. It is from the Latin prehendere, which means to grasp. Cute. The giraffe has lots of papillae in the tongue and inside of the mouth, so it has a lot of taste sensors, so it can taste these leaves and decide, you know, what it's going to eat or is this the tree that I like. Their iconic fur is not the best camouflage for the adults. They more rely on their size and ability to defend themselves and their superior predator detection systems to survive. But for the young, the camouflage seems to be beneficial. Okay. So back to the ossicones, the prominent (laughs) horn-like structures, which both males and females have in giraffes. They may have a role in thermoregulation, which is hilarious. I love the idea of like an ossicone heat sink. (laughs) Yeah. They're also used in combat between males. And if you're curious, you need to know whether that's a lady giraffe or a male giraffe. They can be used to identify the sex of the giraffe. 
the females and young tend to have thinner ossicones with tufts of hair on the top, and male ossicones end in knobs, and they tend to be bald on the top. Oh, okay. And then males will also develop a more prominent median lump, (laughs) which emerges from the front of the skull. Okay. And as the males age, their heads become heavier and more club-like, which helps them to be more dominant in combat. Okay. I'm looking at you, boomers. (laughs) And then the upper jaw has a grooved palate, and it lacks front teeth. Okay. Is this like an example of, did you come across this, a sagittal crest, that thing that some animals have? Oh, you know, I didn't come across that Then that's probably a different function. Probably a different structure. Yeah. Because it talked about like calcifications on the skull. Okay. And so it seems like that's more what's happening with the median lump because it's developed. Okay. Whereas I feel like a sagittal crest, I mean, I'm, I have no idea, you know, but I guess I feel like the sagittal crest is a different type of structure. Yeah. I think it's actually like the bone itself, not like an accumulation, I guess over time it's like they're born she's born with it and actually yeah she's born with it or it's part of their well i guess you could argue that this would be part of the standard development yeah but it's it's less like a collection of material after the fact and more of like a built-in structure i guess yeah and as i'm talking through this i think it's more characteristic of things that are um carnivores because they need that it's it uh aids i think in like the amount of pressure the jaw can come down upon something. Oh, interesting. So I guess they wouldn't need that kind of pressure for just some leaf munching. Sure. Well, and it's a line of inquiry. What's the difference between a median lump and a sagittal crest? <laughs> One sounds a lot more, um, I guess, noble. <laughs> median lump versus <laughs> sagittal crest. Right. Yeah, one sounds more erudite. So they have interesting locomotion. When walking, they move their legs on one side at the same time and then Hmm. the legs on the other side at the same time. And then when galloping, their hind legs move around the front legs before the front legs move forward. It's like a crisscross. Yeah. A little bit. It's like a swoopy, swoopy, swoopy. Yeah. And their (laughs) head and neck move forward and backward to maintain the balance as they run. I've heard it called a symphony of movement. (laughs) They can sustain 31 miles per hour for several kilometers, and they can sprint up to 37 miles per hour. And now we have some quick vertebrae facts. That long neck is only seven cervical vertebrae, which is the same number as the okapi and the same number as humans. That's nuts. It's just like that the vertebrae themselves are just big. (laughs) Yeah, they're units. (laughs) True units. (laughs) Now, this brings us to the genesis of this presentation, which is Anne Innes Dagg, who is the subject of a documentary film, The Woman Who Loves Giraffes. So she was born on January 25th, 1933 in Toronto. She was totally obsessed with giraffe from a young age. She graduated from the University of Toronto in 1955 and went on to earn a master's degree in genetics from the University of Toronto. Her entire life, she wanted to go to Africa to study the giraffe. So she wrote a bunch of countries where there were giraffe, and they all said, no, a woman can't possibly do that. So she started signing her letters A. Dag. She left out her first name, and she wrote a citrus farmer named Alexander Matthew, believing that Anne was a male, said, sure, like you know, come visit. Come on down. 
And then while she was traveling to South Africa, which she did on an ocean liner for the record, he found out that she was in fact a woman and was like, there's absolutely no way that you can come. It's out of the question for you to bunk with my male farmhands. And she was like, well, I'm already on my way. So she hung out in Grahamstown, South Africa, where she wrote this guy, Alexander, multiple times a week until he finally said yes, provided that she stay in his home in exchange for clerical services. So she literally had to then become a secretary, right? She spent 10 hours a day in the field where she was the first to note male giraffes engaging in homosexual behavior. She also traveled to Tanganyika and Kenya to observe giraffe while she was in Africa. This research is the first time a scientist set out to study giraffe in the wild. It's mind-blowing. And her work predates Jane Goodall. She is a trailblazing scientist. Go, girl. Yes. In 1965, she appeared on the television show to tell the truth about it. I You remember that show <laughs> where it's like, here are three people. One of them is the giraffe studying scientist. And you have to like- Yes, I love that show. Yes. Her and the other two women appearing on it successfully bamboozled the panel and convinced the entire panel that someone else was the giraffe expert. So she returns to Canada. She completes a PhD in animal behavior at the University of Waterloo. Her thesis analyzed and compared the aforementioned gates of giraffes and other large animals. And so then she's trucking along. She applies for tenure at her college teaching position, and she is denied despite her trailblazing research and her extreme accomplishments. And so she files a complaint against the Wilfrid L'Oreal University with the Ontario Human Rights Commission. And she says, I have 19 years experience. I've done this trailblazing research. I'm published. I've done everything. Mm -hmm. Why am I being denied tenure? I think it's on account of I'm a woman because you hired a male professor who has less experience and fewer qualifications from me to do the same job that I was up for when I'm a better qualified candidate. Yes. So what? The Ontario ombudsman (laughs) found her claims were absolutely without foundation, which I think speaks to, again, how firmly entrenched the patriarchy is in our society and in the society of the great white North. She continued on with her life, you know, and, explored experiences of women in academia in the 1988 book Miseducation, Women in Canadian Universities, pointing to a reliance on course material and textbooks with gender-based stereotypes, male co-workers making sexist jokes, and lack of support or funding for women researchers. One of the other things that she also has pointed out is that this anthropomorphism of applying human characteristics to creatures has led to bad science. Interesting. Like, if you describe female okapi as coy or bashful, that's not really what they are. And that's not an accurate representation of animal behavior. And that's applying a very particular version of cultural standards for human behavior onto a creature that does not have the same set of cultural and religious hang-ups, perhaps. (laughs) Sure, sure. I encourage everyone to watch the documentary. I found her to be a joyful spirit and a beautiful presence in such a terrible time, just kind of hearing her talk. And she goes around to these different places and she's talking to all these other scientists, just, you know, being a fly on the wall for that conversation. I mean, of course, it's being filmed, so it's a bit performative. But one thing that really struck me is she went to visit this place. There was this young gentleman who was studying the giraffe and he was showing her around and everyone 
that was featured in the film clearly has a reverence for her and is aware of her and is like, oh no, she's a major inspiration. Like, yeah. she's a juggernaut in the literature, you know? She's a, she's a really incredible, did incredible work, you know? And she's so encouraging of everyone. There was one point where this gentleman was showing her around this facility and these two giraffes, these two female giraffe juveniles, I guess, were sparring. Oh. And he was like, yeah, these two, they're both females and they're both sparring. And I've never seen that behavior before. And sh- her response is, oh, that's incredible. That's not even in the literature. You've got to get it in there. And that is like empowering and encouraging. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, that's really awesome. Like, so, so publish right, it, you know, right. like, so do it. And that specific type of energy being removed from academia in the 60s is like just infuriating beyond belief and just such a standard issue experience of being a millennial intellectual. You know, dare I call myself that an elder millennial intellectual (laughs) is that you just are looking around now and you're just like, what the fuck were y'all doing? Like, why'd y'all do this to us? Like, There's all this opportunity for growth and everything, but because of discrimination and because of this attempt to marginalize people and to create this sort of like inner friends club and and nepotism just in general, it's like nepotism is bad for science. Yes. Like that's it. Yes. That's all there is to it. Nepotism is bad for a lot of things. Yes. (laughs) When it plays out like this, it's just tragic to see. And you just wonder how many other people could have been inspired. How many, how much more science could have been done? I know. Oh, it's true. It's like one of those swamp rabbit holes. I, I, as a woman in academia, I just can't really dwell too much on it. Sure. I have to just keep trudging ahead. And, you know, I'm hoping because we do things like Animal Fan Club and have these conversations that, you know, we're doing our own little part. I'd like to think. Yeah. (sighs) I guess for me, it's just hard because I feel like one of the things about being again, this part of this elder millennial generation, and I would say it extends to Gen Xers too, Yes, is that there were so many people that still have not moved out of their positions of authority and their positions of prominence and control that are of a previous generation. Right. And I just am more and more feeling, maybe this is a controversial and unpopular opinion, but maybe the problem actually is that it's the way our society is structured is that <laughs> you can't just do something for 10 years and then move on. You kind of just have to keep doing it because you're a slave to the economic system. Right. You know, I just look at these situations and it's like these people, the descendants of this patriarchy system are still the ones that are in power. They're still the ones making the decisions. They're still the ones calling the shots. Yes. And maybe they're a little disconnected from the actual quotidian experience <laughs> of say a typical student or a typical person who grew up with the internet. And like, isn't that where our discourse needs to be shifting? And don't there need to be these developments? And like, aren't we just going to outpace ourselves with our technology? Yes. You know? Yes. It brought up all those feelings. I think, you know, we're heading towards a point where there's going to be, I don't know about like a mass retirement. We are moving towards the point where a lot of those people of that old guard are going to be, retiring out of the system. I'm seeing it a lot in my own situation. So, I mean, sure. A lot of it is going to be them literally needing to like become extinct. Yeah. <laughs> Cause they're not going to give it up otherwise. Right. Well, and it's a twisted way of, of looking at it, but that's also maybe again, 
Because I can't just assign the blame to every single individual. No. I wonder if if one of the results of COVID is that people are not going to want to go back to work, you know? Oh, yeah. That they're going to kind of retire maybe a couple years earlier than they would. And so many of this generation that has been in power my entire life, they've been the ones calling the shots, you know, since they were 35, they've been the ones calling the shots or at least it feels that way. Maybe that's a skewed perception, but no, I don't think you're wrong. I think that, yeah, there's going to be kind of a mass retirement and then, you know, maybe, maybe the power system can shift and maybe it's good that we're having these types of conversations now, like culturally, right. As this is beginning to happen, you know, as, as, there's this ripe moment for the sort of, you know, qualified democratizing of information that's been happening with the internet. And, you know, certainly sure. dissemination of incorrect information, too, that's also like something that has to be considered in like a lack of rigor, you know. <laughs> we know all about that. <laughs> we sure do. We sure do. Exactly. <laughs> but but again, it's like that's the thing, though, is that we qualify it. We're like, we are amateurs. Right. We're doing this research. We're hanging out and having fun. Right. And talking about animals and learning something that we don't know anything about. Right. And and right. then and then confronting those issues of like, man, my knowledge is limited here, but maybe that's okay. I'm not claiming to be an expert. Certainly we're broadcasting our meetings, but never claiming to, you know, be a referenceable source. I mean, for anything except I'd say some of the best animal poems ever written. Of co- right, Yes. But yeah, yes. I just I just have a lot of <laughs> strong feelings about this. And so I just I'm happy to present them and share them and I'm happy to move forward, although I encourage our listeners to explore these lines Absolutely. of that we've touched upon. Yeah. And I always love these larger issues that can come about through our amateur animal study. It's really cool. Yeah, it is really cool. Well, I guess this <laughs> is a really good time for a break. <laughs> yeah. Break time. Break time. Do you wonder where the skunks of Instinct get their moves? Here's your chance to peek behind the barn doors and see how it's done. With Doug Face's Dance Grooves. A new video that breaks down the moves of the famous Woodcock Shuffle and how to do them step by step. Doug Face's unique Shrubland style dance steps have been featured in brand clubbing music videos, the annual Clubbies Award Show, and concerts seen across the kingdom Animalia. Now, these fresh steps are available for you to learn on Doug Face's Dance Grooves. Plus, Doug Face will show you his new woodcock and lock routine. He breaks it down so you can learn the dances at your own speed. When you're watching this choreography, you just want to get up and do it with him. Remember, Doug Face's Dance Grooves is only sold through the Brand Clubby web portal and select Brand Clubby retailers. Must be out of your larval stage to order. Got some fall grains here. A little quinoa, a little barley. Some delicious Halloween candy. Mmm. Yum, yum. It's the November feedback. Delicious. All right. Well, Allison, actually, appropriately, Allison's from Nova Scotia, by the way, but appropriately wants to know, what kind of hats do giraffes like to wear? Mike, you want to you wanna go for this since you know so much about giraffes now? Well, I'm just concerned about the ossicones. Yeah. I like the idea of the giraffe having two tiny hats for the ossicones. 
but I think that the giraffe instead has hats with acetone holes. Sure. Yeah, I was thinking something maybe like a with like a big um, a giraffe mom used a really big crochet needle to make like a really loose weave on say like a beanie or something. So like the acetones oh. just can like poke through the really sure. loose weave. See, I was picturing like an adapted fedora. For those teenage giraffes that need to play saxophone in band <laughs> and wear the appropriate headwear. Oh, that gets me every time. <laughs> I'm kind of looking forward to when my nieces and nephew are the awkward middle school ages, you know? Yes. Like that's going to be pretty fun. I know. More for us than for them. Right. Definitely <laughs> for me. Entirely for me. <laughs> Not at all for them. I, yeah, I guess it just depends on, you know, which subspecies are we talking about? Which taxonomic method are we using to separate the giraffes into different species? What's the individual's taste level? I guess these all come into play. Yeah. But so far we have knit caps and adapted fedoras. Yeah. I think that sounds great. Yeah. A fish right. position. Well, yeah. Ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. Steven from Sarasota asks... Which creature is the most frugal consumer of Halloween candy? Whoa. Do we mean frugal in terms of like the amount of time it takes them to eat it, to share it, to, or in terms of like the amount that they eat in any given sitting? Right. I would think that you collect the Hall of Halloween candy and then how mm -hmm. long does that last? As a food source. Oh, I would say my first thought was that like an anteater would love it, but it would take them a while because it all has to be done through licks. Oh, that's interesting. So it would take a lot longer. They'd have to lick it down because they don't have teeth. It's not like they can munch it up all fast. Sure. It'd all have to be like at the rate at which they could lick it down. <laughs> yeah, the diminished dentata. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's interesting, Meredith, that you went for the mere mechaphagians because I was thinking of... Ants, I was thinking that the leafcutter ants would probably have some strategy of like mm. like taking the Halloween candy and then growing it into some sort of fungus, like fungal mass, you know? Oh, yeah. That's like a completely different approach. Yeah. Like, would they use it to not to eat it, but to like feed another organism that they could eat? Like, yeah, that's. I guess how I was imagining it, which I guess is a yeah. different definition of frugal consumption. Yeah, it's like indirect consumption. Right. But very cool, nevertheless. Yeah. I like both. Yeah. Ants are anteaters, Stephen. Yeah. That's the official position. No other options there. Yeah. Ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. So Randy from Boulder asks, what's a polar bear's favorite ice cream? Hmm. Ice cream sounds really good right now. It does. I mean, it's, I guess, an ice cream format, but like the Klondike bar? I was thinking, like, this isn't necessarily a flavor because there's a lot of options, but the Blizzard from Dairy oh. Queen. <laughs> oh, wow. So both of us are thinking formats, not flavors. Right. But it doesn't say flavors. It just says favorite ice cream. Right. Hmm. And I think the Klondike bar actually has a polar bear in the logo. Well, that's why I think of it. Nice. <laughs> like polar bear approved. Yeah. Well, I think that that's pretty good. Kl Klondike bar. Klondike bar? Or... Blizzards. Or Blizzard. Wow. House divided, but still maintaining a fish position. That's kind of the theme of this feedback. Yeah, I like that. I like yeah. that. Ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. Well, that was really fun, Meredith. Great work. Yeah, you as well. Keep the questions coming, everyone. AnimalFanClubPod at gmail.com. You know, we sure love to hear from you. 
Yeah, we certainly do. And uh, check us out on Instagram. Meredith's been nailing it with the Insta posts lately. Uh, except for the past two weeks where I kept forgetting to do it. Yeah, that's okay. I'll remedy that. You know, time is a social construct by humans, like the measurement of time. We're really embracing animal energy by spontaneous Instagram posts. Exactly. And I found that, you know, no excuses. I know I have a job to do, but I've been kind of avoiding Instagram out of like a mental health protection. Yeah, wise. Lately. So I'm just not in that mindset, but I know I've got, I've got a task to do and I love that. I need to complete it. All right. Well, until next time. Bye. Bye. Animal Fan Club is created and produced by us, Meredith Jurgens and Mike Luno. We also create all our original music and sonic experiences. Send us your listener feedback questions to animalfanclubpod at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at animalfanclubpod, at Meredith Jurgens and at Mike underscore Luno. And don't forget to rate and review our podcast on your favorite app. That really helps us out. Thanks for listening to our show. We hope it makes your heart and spirit glow. We'll be here next week for another meeting of the Animal Fan Club.